Hey friends, welcome to week 39 of Weekly Finds. I hope you had a chance to check out my special inbound tech bound podcast episode with Christopher Penn. I know it's a bit of a mouthful, but in a nutshell, I recorded a special episode for Inbound with Christopher Penn, in which we talk about all sorts of AI, the impact of machine learning on SEO, and how you can basically use machine learning for your own purposes. So please have a look at that. And then also in two weeks, my Brighton SEO presentation will be launched. It's going to be about zero-click searches and how you can basically still drive traffic in a zero-click world. Also, just a quick reminder to please give me five stars wherever you listen to the podcast to and to make sure you're subscribed to Weekly Finds to not miss them in the future. And for those who are new to Weekly Finds, the idea is basically for me to summarize the best content that I found that week and then to distill it for you, including the key lessons that I learned from that piece. This week's juicy content bouquet includes an article about the billion dollar block growth lessons from a video game, product positioning, HubSpot's newest content marketing strategy, and how Google reprocesses core update scores. Let's jump in. One. The first piece of this week is Nathan Berry's Billion Dollar Blog. And in it, he tells the story of several creators who started with a blog and then turned that into a business. One of the most famous ones, you probably heard of her, is Emily Weiss who started the blog Glossy or Glossier in 2010 and then built that into Glossybox. And she basically built up a business that's well worth over a billion dollars. Nathan Berry mentions a couple of people. Um, some are smaller bloggers and founders, some are bigger ones. Um, you have, for example, George Clooney and a couple of other stars. You have, of course, the Kardashians. Uh, but then you also have a couple of examples of people who banked too much on their personal brand and were not able to build that into a billion-dollar business. And the reason for why some of those people failed is because they banked on the wrong platform, but they also hung on to their own personal name too much. So one recurring pattern that you see from the most successful creators is that at some point, it's less about them and it's more about the bigger project that they push forward. So the, the key lesson for me here is that some creators are able to turn their audience into a bootstrapped startup. And that's very interesting because it goes a little bit against this classic model of raising a lot of money and then building a big company. Instead, those people monetize their audience that they build over many years and over a longer time. But as I mentioned before, they make it at some point less about themselves and more about the product or community that they're creating. So this transition from the person to the product is the key lesson for me here. Two. I've mentioned several times that computer games and the business models that were built around them are starting to become more and more of a blueprint for other software companies as well. And to be fair, that idea is not completely from me. I kind of copied that from Mary Mika, who mentioned that in the context of freemium. And so it's no wonder that games are showing us a better roadmap for growth as well. And so this piece is a YouTube video titled from unknown title to viral game 12 lessons from Spellbreak. And it's a very interesting case study of a game that had 
or created 600,000 signups before they launched it. So as the name says, these are 12 growth lessons, but I wanted to mention my top five. The first one is to put the developer blog on Imager, which is interesting to me because they, the developers of Spellbreak decided not to own the blog, but to put it out there and expose it to the masses and the people. And that, that was very attractive. The second tip is to not advertise too hard. So the makers of Spellbreak chose a community first approach. And so instead of you know having their own website and having a, a one directional communication path, they chose to, to basically integrate with the community and develop the game together with them. And of course, if you're in that position, you don't want to advertise too hard. You want to be very passive and answer more questions instead of pushing a message out there. The third lesson is to create a lot of GIFs. Of course, video games are super sexy and it's much easier to create memes for a game, but the creators of Spellbreak did that really well. So make sure you check out the video, see how they do it. It's, it's, it's a really nice strategy. The fourth tip is to set up a referral program. So similar like newsletters as The Hustle or The Skim, many others, the game makers created a similar referral program where you can get your friends license keys to try the beta out. Of course, if you refer the game further, and that creates a kind of a snowball effect. And then the last tip from that article is to create a cool kids club. So some people were allowed to try the alpha and earlier versions of the game, but that number of seats was very limited. And that creates a kind of pull, a kind of attraction, because there's a shortage or scarcity of something that's very valuable, but also that creates status. And so the key lesson for me is that games are being built more like software products, or maybe software products are built more like games. I don't know at this point anymore, but they bring all the stuff that a software company would do as well to develop a great product, like testing, quick feedback, product market fit, expansion, basically the whole lean startup methodology. Three. Another video, this time from April Dunford, titled, titled How to Nail Product Positioning. And if you haven't seen April Dunford present, it's pretty entertaining, so make sure to check that out. In this video, she talks about the six pillars or basics of product positioning. The first one is the market category. So you need to understand what context makes the value obvious to your customer segments. The second one are the alternatives to your product. And that doesn't always have to be a competitor product itself. It can also be just another alternative. So in very many cases, you can ask your audience, um, what would you use if my product wouldn't exist? And very often the answer is actually spreadsheets or some other app. The third pillar is the pillar of unique attributes. So that is basically plain forward what features your product has. The value is pillar number five, and that describes the value that these features or attributes enable for your customers. And then the last pillar, number six, are the customer segments, which are basically the people who care about the value. And so the key lesson for me here is the framework that April lays out, which is opposed to the classic idea of a positioning statement, right? So she criticizes this position statement in her presentation, for example, by saying it's something that you can't just know, but instead you need a tool. And this six pillar method 
or whatever you want to call it, is that tool that helps you to really position your product on the market. Four. Alex Burkett from HubSpot wrote a piece called HubSpot's Newest Marketing Strategy. And the idea that he represents in that blog article is the idea of surround sound or surround SEO, if you will. I've been beating the drum for this for quite a while. And in a nutshell, the thought is to be present on several channels to support SEO. Reality is that SEO has become so competitive and the search results have developed to a point that there is so much competition cognitively and from a positioning perspective that it's really hard to just attract a lot of traffic with a single result. And so instead you want to make sure you're omnipresent or present in several channels, whether that's ads or YouTube or audio or a different strategy, and that you keep coming back into the share of mind of your users and of your readers. And with that, you increase the chance of people returning to your content, of people clicking your content and recognizing the search results in the SERP. So the key lesson for me here is that simple SEO isn't really enough anymore nowadays. And instead you want to be present on many channels and on many platforms and almost build a web around the web in a meta sense, right? So you want to make sure that you repurpose your content. You want to make sure that you are visible over and over again, wherever your audience is present. Five. There has been a heated debate going on in the SEO community about whether you can or cannot recover from a broad Google core update. Two weeks ago, Barry Schwartz interviewed John Mueller and John said that you do not have to wait until the next update. In a follow-up interview, that sounded a little different and John clarified that in some cases you might have to wait until Google's algorithm re-evaluate the situation. Now, the debate is pretty tedious and at first sight, it might not be clear if it's really helpful, but in my head, the difference between waiting for the next core update and being able to recover before the next one rolls out tells a bit of a story about how Google algorithms work, but also what different types of algorithm updates there are. So the key lesson for me here is that broad core algorithm updates seem to be very much bigger overhauls of Google's understanding of many things, right? That can be for one semantics and that plays back into the quality of content, but then it can also factor in the importance of brand when it comes to the quality of content, right? So there are tons of nuances and, and details to get lost in, but then it also seems like Google rolls out smaller updates. And naturally a bigger update of semantics, meaning of meaning and understanding will lead Google to reevaluate previous choices, which means that it makes perfect sense that certain sites can only recover once a new broad core algorithm update has been rolled out. And then in other cases, there might be factors that are measured a bit more in real time from which sites that are affected can recover. That was it again for this week. As always, I hope you enjoyed this. Please leave me some feedback if you did. And I'll hear you next week.